Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin, who's been missing from the show for a week or so, is joining me between busy studio scheduled life to talk about the news. What's up, Devin? How are you doing, man? Oh, you know, t- tired and busy. Uh, so is the life. No rest for the wicked. Uh, it's um, <laughs> it's just it's been uh, it's it's been a lot uh, right now uh, with dual studios as well as a lot of freelance work and stuff like that. It's been hard to find. Uh, just an hour or two for myself. Uh, not that I plan on going like this for a while. Just certain circumstances have kind of thrown me into a situation of fourteen-hour days, and you know, you get used to it, and then you grow up and you mature like DJ over there, and you get a proper job where you can, you know, sleep in on the weekends. So, tell me about <laughs> the overnight stuff. I mean, you just mentioned before the show that you're going to be uh, scheduled in the studio at one a.m. Like, what are you doing at one a.m.? Uh, well, the show actually goes live uh, until one a.m. So it, it and it's kind of like up until when the show uh, goes live, which is around nine o'clock Eastern or so. Uh, once the show goes live, uh, then yeah, I'm there for supporting live. But before that, they're doing a bunch of on-demand content. They're constantly uploading. It's because it's a news-based organization. So because they're doing so much of that stuff, uh, actually. My shift right now is actually engineering, where before it would usually be camera op or something else like that that's actually involved in production. So engineering-wise, uh, I'm waiting for something to break. I'm helping to improve the studio where I can, uh, as well as like manage general routing workflows through the building and everything else, So as well as a little bit of IT, though they do have dedicated IT people. So on my end, guys, uh, I've been playing around with this guy right here. Oh, hold on. I got to find it. There it is. Uh, (laughs) This guy right here, it's a a Novation circuit. Um, I was kindly invited by the people at Novation to head over to Portland to cover an event. And uh, as a thank you, uh, I got to play with some really cool musical equipment. So now I have one of these in my collection I uh, don't know what I'm going to do with it, but uh, this is probably going to eat up the rest of my afternoon just <laughs> making some fat beats, yo. On that note, I think it's probably time for the news. Time for the news. All right, first up, we've got a LED light panel. And actually, I want to thank Devin today because he has such a tight schedule that he went in and took it upon himself to do all of the news articles. I am just going to be following along with Devin as he tells you about these things because he's got to get back to the studio and this will be a short (laughs) show. So Devin, tell me about the Roscoe Uh, light pad. It's, uh, you know, uh, these came out pretty recently, it sounds like. And I was, because I'm always interested in LED light panels And I know that there's a lot of limitations with them, but there's also so much convenience. And so this is a brand that, you know, just about everyone knows when it comes to, I guess you could call your serious filmmaking or people with really big budgets. Uh, And $1,000 a piece for these light panels just seems really pricey. And I look into it more and I see that the company themselves recommend that you put a, uh, what I assume is like a magenta gel on it to fix some of the green spike. That's awful. Which to me just seems crazy because... While I do agree, just about any LED you throw out there, if you throw up, you know, a color accurate thing, you're going to see a green spike because there's just certain physical limitations to how it all works. But I'm surprised that this company didn't just like somehow bake a green filter into their product, whether it's just the diffusion layer on top of the LEDs or something like that. Uh, To me, it just kind of seems shortcutting it where they give you it and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, for the best light, you also need to throw this gel on top of this light. 
And it's like, well, that, what, why, why, you know, this brand of quality and everything else for these kind of lights? So, well, and these are thousand dollar lights too. So, thousand dollars a piece. Not even like oh. when you see a kit, a kit there with a backpack. That's more than a thousand. They're a thousand just for one of those pads. Holy cow, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it seems like. It seems like for that price, you would be getting at least some sort of color accuracy out of these things. Yeah, and, and I'm sure I'm sure they probably are the most color accurate LEDs you can find anywhere. Uh, but at that price, uh, I've been looking into things like uh, this guy here. This is a pretty large, Holy crap. somewhat large LED panel. Yeah, uh, they run for about 150 to 300, and uh, a lot of them are made in a way that they use uh, these V mount batteries, uh, which DJ knows I've been becoming a fan of uh <laughs> dj doesn't like them because they're expensive but uh I, I find myself needing that kind of power more and more especially with led lights so i've been using them a lot and i've been trying to test out the color accuracy and it's really impressive if you look at the modern design for led fixtures because you can still buy the old ones that are pretty green and pretty crappy but the new ones it's really impressive how far they've come and they're still at such a low price point so uh, you can get a color dimming version of one of those that, you know, for 150 maybe, and you can get one that just shoots one, like, cool white for $300 or so. And I'm really impressed with the amount of just clean white I'm getting from it because I've used the really cheap LEDs. I've used the little, what do you call them, CN90s or whatever, the yeah. little $20 ones. And I can tell when someone's using those because I can see the green in it and it's not brilliant. And you can call, you can white balance for it. You can kind of correct and. When you tell your camera to white balance, it'll go, oh, I'll back off on the green because I'm seeing a lot of green on this white. But um, still, it's uh, it, it's one of those things that I, I wanted to look at and be like, man, there's probably a better solution out there than these $1,000 lights. Now, pro tip for you guys, if you're in the market for some cheap LED lights, uh, they're not super cheap by any means, but the ICAD kits, the 500 series are normally in the 1700 to $2,000 price range. But if you check around on eBay, there are a lot of secondhand and return ICAN panels that go up for sale on a regular basis. And this is the three light kit that's normally 1700 bucks. It's 699 with $30 in shipping. So, you know, keep an eye out for those because there are a lot of great deals that you can get your hands on as far as LED panels are concerned. Um, I've bought several kits uh, from that particular fire sale in boxes that were <laughs> a little iffy. But, you know, you get five light panels for $450, dollars that's, that's less than a quarter of the price that they normally run for. So well worth investing in. As far as your V-Lock comment goes, Devin, I will <laughs> gladly rent V-Lock batteries for a job, but I will not own any because it is not necessary for my production <laughs> setup. Um, you know, if sure. you're on a real job, you do need V-Lock batteries to run all day. But as a, a single guy shooting, I can just throw a pile of LP6s or Canon mm -hmm. NW, or I mean, Sony NW. MPs. MP50s or whatever in there and, and be good to go. All right. I'm moving fast because Devin's got to go soon. Let's talk about the next story. The firmware update to the F700. Looks like the F700 and F700R are both getting uh, firmware updates for new lenses. Basically, the secret here is out. Sony is going to be releasing some new lenses, and they are kind enough to offer this update for some of their older cameras. Now, before we get into what this means, let's take a look at the price of the FS700. Which is still a great-looking camera. I oh, mean, my God, it is. It and may be old, but let's not discount. Look at any kind of footage out there. 
And it's a fantastic camera that's been used on lots of TV shows and a lot of higher-end web productions and stuff. If you don't mind a boxy box, you can pick up the <laughs> used FS700 for under $3,000. And that's not just uh, the body by itself. It's a whole kit here. So keep an eye out for those. If you're looking it's for... It's come way down in price, too. Yeah, I, I think... Wasn't the retail on this like somewhere in the seven or $800? Or not seven or eight hundred, seven or $8,000 range originally? Yeah, I want to say it was, it was pretty much out of the reach of most amateur uh, filmmakers. And now it's really come into like... It's less than the cost of a 5D Mark III new... Yeah, exactly. I, and you consider the, you know, all the XLR and all the other professional features you get with a camera like this. Uh, to me, it's it's really something to consider if you're like, oh, should I get, you know, a, a C300 Mark One used? It's like, or should I get an FS700? Because remember, that thing does what? Uh, I think at least 160 in full HD in terms of a high frame rate. If yeah, you want to do internal slow-mo. 4K recording too, I believe. That's right. With uh, well, I thought the FS seven hundred needed a hack in order to do it. I'm not sure about. Did they I, unlock that for everybody? I don't remember. I, it's, it's been so it, long it's since I've while. touched one of those. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I can't. It say. is capable of four K recording, whether in, internally with a hack or externally, or maybe Sony finally said, "Okay, everyone can record four K." But it is possible to record four K with it too. So that's way above something like a, a C one hundred Mark One. So yeah, definitely sexy camera. So tell me what this firmware update means, basically, Devin. Well, I think it just goes to show that Sony's very dedicated to that that e format uh, that, and that I think we'll we'll probably see a lot more from them because it's really been just a few like very select lenses. Uh, I don't think that they've really had a whole lot of like reasonably priced primes like your Canon and Nikon has come out with, and everyone's always adapting lenses to Sony. Anyone who shoots with an A seven S or anything like that. I like never see a proper normal lens on it. And the only time I think I've seen a Sony lens on a Sony camera uh, is probably with the FS 700. When that came out, they had that kind of ENG lens with the uh, rocker mount of uh, the servo zoom. And when I saw that, that's probably the only time I've seen a Sony lens in the wild actually being used. Though I do hear that they uh, they're coming out with a, a reasonably priced 50 millimeter prime lens so i'm guessing that this is to update so that it works properly with that as well as probably other uh, lenses coming down the line reasonably priced 249 dollars for the nifty 50 uh 50 millimeter f1.8 which from canon or nikon will set you back about 90 dollars so they definitely think a lot of their lenses uh checking on that 4k statement uh it's the FS700R that is capable of internal 4K recording. Okay. The FS7U has to be upgraded or have an external pack to to accommodate that. That's so. right. That's right. It was it was a uh, an upgrade you could pay for. And when you go on eBay, a lot of them will say if you're buying used, they'll be like, "We bought the upgrade." So keep a lookout for that too, because I've seen a few that uh, that are the lesser model, but people have bought and paid for the upgrade already, so that camera's licensed to do 4K. So. Yeah, and the kit you need if you want to do the external recording is the AXS-R5 recorder for raw external recording. Uh, man, That's right, it does raw 4K, which I don't even think a C300 will do. So. No, that's pretty <laughs> sexy, actually. Now, I mean, if the camera wasn't shaped like... A box and was sort of an ergonomic well, shape. I would. Sony learned their lesson. The FS7 and FS5 definitely shows that Sony heard when everyone said, Why does it look like this? This doesn't make sense. All right. So. Moving on down the line here, speeding things up. Let's talk about this 12 millimeter lens from Panasonic. Uh, you know, what do you know about this, Devin? Uh, it's, it's just rumors right now. It, it's apparently been confirmed by multiple sources, uh, but rumor sites have it that. 
uh, Panasonic, which I think has been a, quite a while since Panasonic has dropped a new lens, is going to be releasing a 12 millimeter. No idea on f-stop or if it would have image stabilization or anything fancy. I imagine not in image stabilization because it's a 12 millimeter. But it's supposed to be a Leica, which that name is supposed to mean something. I don't know how much that name means anything these days. Uh, but it is supposed to be a Leica 12 millimeter that's coming out soon. No wording on price or any of that kind of stuff. I imagine it'll probably be like a 1.4. I'm not totally sold on that, but I think that a 12 millimeter 1.4 sounds like something that Panasonic might get, uh, release. Huh? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what's in that range. You've got the 17 f1.8 and the 15 f1.7, and then uh, I believe the 12 that's out right now isn't that a 2.0? Yeah, so if they could go a little bit wider, you know, a wider aperture than f two o, that would make me happy. Uh, do I need it? Uh, am I going to buy it? Probably not. I'm I'm pretty well kitted out for micro four thirds, and honestly, in the primes division, uh, you know, well, fifteen and, is so close to t- uh, the twenty four yeah. millimeter equivalent that it's just and not knowing necessary. that it's a Leica. Uh, I imagine the price is probably going to be up there too. This isn't going to be like their uh, 14 millimeter lens that goes for nothing. So. You know, anymore, I don't know if the Leica stamp on Panasonic glass is really that big of a deal either direction. The 15 millimeter F17, Panasonic does not have the Leica branding on it, and they ask for. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm lying to you. I, I believe they do have the Leica branding on it. Never mind. Just scratch everything they put the I just Leica said. Leica on everything. Leica on everything. <laughs> and in fact, what's really fun is when you go into the Leica store, which uh, I managed to get into while I was in Singapore, and you see uh, Panasonic cameras that look a little bit shinier <laughs> that are covered with like Leica branding. It's like, wait a minute, how did that happen? That's a, I, I didn't even know about all of the point-and-shoot Leica cameras until I went into the Leica store. I'm like, wait a minute, that looks very much like my LX100, and it's you know labeled something else, uh, OS95 or something like that. What? Really? It, it's marked up with an extra two or $300? Nice job. Nice job. Way to sell to rich people. (laughs) All right. Uh, While we're talking about those lenses, I did want to mention, too, that there are some rumors of Olympus lenses coming out. Looks like possibly some F1.2 primes in 2016 and 2017. Uh, Plans are to start with a 25mm F1.2 and work their way around from there. That is pretty attractive, and I do like Olympus's prime lenses, especially one of my favorites in my collection is the 75mm F1.8. If you do any kind of... uh, portrait shots or anything like that that is a beautiful lens to have in your kit and f1.8 at uh, what is basically 150 millimeter equivalent will give you very beautiful bokeh in the background Devin, you have any primes that you fall in love with for your microsphere's uh, body <laughs> actually the uh the super cheap i got it on sale the panasonic uh i want to say f1.8 25 millimeter Oh, was that the uh, the crazy $99 sale? Yeah, like they had the big sale on it. I think it went down to maybe 120 or something like that. But uh, yeah, I got that back when it was on sale because I was just like, oh, hey, I'll have a Prime with autofocus. That'll be nice every once in a while. And then I'm kind of surprised because Panasonic's, even the GH3 is pretty good at doing autofocus and video mode and whatnot. Uh, overall, it just... There's no complaints about the lens. I'm sure, you know, you can find stuff that's faster and prettier, but for the price... Uh, it's a fat, the autofocus on it is fast and it was just a pleasure to shoot with because 
that's basically a 50, you know, for a full frame, something like a 5D. So it, it just became a great lens for me to keep on there all the time and walk around and take pictures of. And I have shot a few videos with it because f1.8 is pretty reasonable to try to keep things in focus. All right, Devin. Well, I've got you here and you've missed out on a few camera announcements over the last couple of months. First, I want you to weigh in on the Ursa Mini. Tell me what you think about the <laughs> Ursa Mini 4, uh, 4.6K camera. Uh, you know, I've, I've really wanted to touch one. I've really wanted to uh, grab and s- see what it's like to really shoot with it. I've heard really great things about the EVF, that the EVF is just in the right spot. It just works. It's great. Um, you know, th- that compact flash thing kind of stinks. Uh, I didn't think it would stink that much, but then working with a new C- C300 Mark II, which has really expensive compact flash that requires special reader and everything else... Uh, obviously, this is where technology is emerging. It'll become cheaper after a while, but for right now, it is super expensive to get into that. Also, too, there's I, I hear about some quirks with it that I expected it to have, but I guess I was hoping that it'd be a more complete package than what I'm currently hearing right now. What do you think about the lack of global shutter? Uh, the lack of global shutter is not a killer for me. I, I, I think a lot of people, they really wanted that, and obviously there's certain situations where, yeah, you would really want that, but for the most part, I've learned to live without it for so long that I'm not going to uh, be dying over it. I, I hear that maybe they're going to come out with another version or something like that that has a global shutter. Blackmagic's supposed to make something happen at NAB, but we know that that means, you know, that won't be a thing until two years down the road anyway. So. All right, next camera on the list, the Kinfinity Terra. Uh, this is a, a 5K or a 6K camera for about $5,000. What do you think about it? I, I This is one of those that... Uh, you know, it's, I love it whenever like somebody's kind of throwing rocks at red and some of the bigger manufacturers, uh, like when, uh, Zakudo had that shoot off and they're like, Oh, the GH two can, you know, resolve as much detail and dynamic range as an area or, uh, you know, an Alexa. And it's like, no, I, when that kind of stuff happens, I, I think it's fun. I love it. It's not realistic at all, but for a camera like this, I see a lot of possibility, but I think the fact that it's still super modular, like a red, I understand why they do that. It's not as cheap as everyone thinks once you get all the pieces on it together and yet to see any footage on it. Like, yeah, it has an amazing spec sheet, but like anyone else, you know, you just become, um, you know, a, a message board groupie when you sit here and just like hammer out spec sheets against each other. I'd really like to see what it is like to shoot with it uh, because I think that, one thing Red learned is that software's make or break for usability and Red got it together and started like really fixing up their software issues with their camera and making their cameras really reliable uh, and giving the options that the customers asked for. That was a growing pain and they got over it. Uh, this company, I'm not so sure because we know so little about them and it's not like they've had even as long of a heritage as Red because Red is still a pretty short you know, company in terms of its life. Uh, so it'll, and usually when you get a camera from say Chinese manufacturers or something like that, the software is probably the most lacking thing every single time. And to put this much money into a product where the software doesn't meet the hardware, uh, is a real shame. And I see that with Chinese. We don't know yet for sure if that's going to happen or not. We we don't. And now I do want to say you and I will probably, when we're at NAB this year, get a chance to mess around with this camera. Uh, I believe they will have a booth there, and I'm planning on bringing a few Canon lenses to test out on this guy, and maybe they'll even let me put a memory card in it this year. 
it that would and that would be great too because I'd love to see some of the footage that actually comes off because there's really nothing to reference this. The Ursa Mini footage is still looking great. It's usually the usability parts that I've heard has been kind of like, oh, I wish it had this and I wish it had this. Where this camera, it's like I've literally seen nothing out of that sensor. So I. But no isn't idea. it shifty with the Ursa Mini that uh, no one can actually talk about their feelings on the camera other than showing off what they shot with it in a perfect lighting oh, scenario and- with like a big budget. Sure. In terms of like, uh, you know, when they send out the early units and stuff like that, that people are, aren't supposed to share feelings about it because it's a non-final product or what have you. To me, that is shady. I think that Black Magic is going about it the wrong way, trying to keep control of their image of how well their cameras work and what their camera does. Because I just saw a similar thing. I saw somebody showing a, a Black Magic, po- the new pocket cinema camera, which is small without the screen, showing raw footage from that. And the person was like, look at how great this raw footage is, 12-bit raw, and that's it. They just had some footage. They didn't have anything about usability or what it's like to shoot with or their personal opinions on it. They're just like, look at this raw footage, and this is what it looks like when it's corrected. And that was it. And I was like, what? I can't tell if you liked it or not. You just you sat here and showed me footage of it. So I, I think that could be Black Magic, maybe, in my opinion, going kind of the wrong way in terms of controlling People who they don't want somebody to say again, hey, this is another half-baked product that it's going to take a year until they get the software where it needs to be. So it, I, and I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think that it's just software development should become more of a priority. Uh, I understand that with the hardware they're using and the prices they're selling that a lot of things are on margins and they probably have very slim uh, money to throw around to get things developed. But still... Uh, that is shifty because just about any other company will, you know, stand by their brand and be like, you can say whatever you want about the camera because we have faith in our product. All right. Last thing I want you to weigh in on is the Ninja Flame. (laughs) Uh, This is cool. HDR to me is like a a long ways out. I mean, uh, I don't want to get really technical right now because we can go in a bazillion different directions with it. But uh, what's known as like Rec 709, and I'm not a colorist, so understand. I, I, I could be, you know, talking out my behind with this, but Rec 709 is kind of that standard everyone knows as kind of this 8 bit and it's used for TVs and a lot of monitors and stuff like that. Limited and then to like six standard. stops of dynamic range. And yeah. Rec 2020, uh, I believe, is the new crazy high HDR. Standard, yes. Right? And so Rec 2020, I, I saw this on this new C300 because. I believe there's going to be possibly maybe a 4K format that is going to be the Rec 2020 that's going to allow for this large dynamic range. And it's cool that uh, they're trying to like beat everyone to the curb, be like, look, we have an external recorder that'll like record this kind of dynamic range format. At the end of the day, it's going to be a marginal improvement in terms of like, even when we went 1080p to 4K, you could point out and go, look, there's there's difference there. You can see some more detail. And in certain distances and monitors and everything else, yes, you can see a difference between 4K and 1080p in an ideal environment. Uh, HDR is just even less than that in terms of the differences I think you'll see between the two. I think it'll be brilliant, and it'll look really good in a controlled environment when you're in a dark room and everything else, and it's like a movie theater. I'm all about that. And I think it'll look great for those environments, especially for filmmaking. And when you're talking about the DCI format and everything else, I think it's great for that. When it comes to people like watching crap on their phones and their TVs, 2020 is going to be great for post-production work. And it's going to be great for maybe like before you the broadcast hits the antenna 
uh, or before your video hits the stream in terms of talking about the future. But it's one of those where I'm like, this is not going to come around for a long time. This isn't something I'm going to buy into right now. It's well, really cool. Even when it's implemented, uh, there won't be cameras that will have the capability to cover that much dynamic range. I mean, what's the max yeah, right I, now? Probably looking at like an, uh, maybe 13 or 14 stops maximum out of most cameras. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I guess you know you could you could maybe claim I guess fifteen or something with an Area Alexa, but yeah, right. but you Most, start getting shady. No, I know getting... it's you're you're kind of cheating and bending things. No, I I think yeah, this is great that we're coming out with a format that is going to you know be bigger than what we are currently capable of. That's really smart. That's how you make formats. But I just don't think it's an important. And at the end of the day, we're talking about dynamic range which everyone keeps like, uh, they, they, they consider it to be, I think, something more than it is. For me, dynamic range is kind of like when you're listening to music, there's a certain point where you don't want to hear a sound louder than a, a certain dB because you go, that hurts my ears. So you want everything to be between silence and this level. And dynamic range just kind of adds more detail to that range, but it doesn't necessarily make things you know louder or quieter. You can't because you're either uncomfortable or you just can't perceive it. So like that's why Rec 709 and 8-bit has been around for so long because honestly, it's good enough. As we get closer and technology gets better, we'll have room for all this extra stuff and dynamic range and color information. But I think at the end of the day, it's like we're working very hard to make just smallest improvements as opposed to something like when we went standard F to HD, that was us taking a large step. And even 1080p, dare I say it, to 4K was, you know, somewhat of a step, a bit of a mediocre step. Well, and so. even when you have dynamic range to work with, a lot of times you're like, ah, let's uh, go ahead and add some contrast to this and crush yeah, the heck out of the blacks, you know? I mean, Let's go ahead and crush the blacks. Right, there's so much stylistically that's being done. Uh, and I, I think, too, as a format, uh, 8-bit Rec 709 uh, it has as much contrast as most people are willing to watch anyway. So, you know, anything that's decently tuned together, I think the best part of what will come out of this is just standards. And hopefully that also comes out to the consumer end of standards of TVs. As more people do home theater stuff, as they start making things where, hey, for 50 bucks, you can watch this movie that's in theaters, but you can watch in your living room with your friends. When that starts to become standardized, then having like projector systems and stuff like that in people's houses that follow these standards will become so much more important. Last question on the flame. What do you think about the extreme brightness capabilities and the fact that the monitor actually looks fairly nice? I, I, I think it's good. I I hear mixed things. I hear people who are like, oh, the... You know, the, the uh, Shogun it's, and stuff like it's that. It's like 1,500 oh, uh, nets, so that means basically you can yeah, see basically it in sunlight. broad sunlight. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those I'd have to see in person to really see how good that is because I'm not sure if, like, nits are a logarithmic scale like it is for Lux and stuff like that. So I don't know exactly how that conversion works. I'd have to see it in person. I've had plenty of monitors that are 800 nits, and they work pretty well in sunlight and maybe a small hood, and you're fine. Um, I will tell it, you that uh, Small bright. HD has had a demonstration model last year at NEB that they would take out in the sun for you. And at the time, I think it was priced at like two or $3,000, but uh, it was t- uh, 2,000 nit, I think. And uh, 
out in the bright sunlight in Vegas during the day, you could see everything on the monitor perfectly fine without really? any kind of hood or anything. And it was, it was mind boggling. It, it almost, it was so bright that you know, it kind of made you squint a little bit looking at the monitor. Really? That's how bright it was. So, I mean, <laughs> just thinking about that, it's, it's really nice. It's really bright. And that sort of light output also makes things a lot more, um, I want to say vivid is probably the term I would use. So like, it's really, it's nice to look at. And for a thousand dollars, and it's also capable of recording your video. Actually, I think the flame is 1200 and the, the ninja, no, the ninja flame is 1200 and the upgrade with SDI is 1600. So 1200 bucks for a high end monitor. That's also capable of recording. That's a pretty good deal actually. And the only thing that I see wrong with that setup is the fact that uh, batteries are a pain in the butt. They did add chain batteries to that particular system, but man, those the batteries you use on those are huge and they go through batteries fast. And I don't think they've done anything to change that, especially since you're running a very high watt usage uh, hard drive behind your monitor. Yeah, it's and I, I think that that's, um, man, yeah, I, now that you say that too, I think about the battery life and I'm like, oh, yeah, I think the original uh, Ninja, uh, whatever the hell, the previous Flame, before Flame, uh, that one was like, it only had one battery slot, and it, a battery would only last you maybe an hour and a half, two hours on the tops. So wow, you'd yeah. be changing out those uh, Sony MPU batteries on a, a very regular basis, and there was no daisy chaining, so you really, you did have to shut it off, put a battery in, and turn it back on. With the new uh, Flame setup, they've got two batteries again, so you can switch between them, but I mean... Still, they do eat through batteries fast, and that's where Blackmagic is kind of winning with their video assist is that uh, because it's using uh, SD cards as opposed to a, a rotating hard drive or an SSD, uh, it's not using nearly as much power, and it's also not as bright of an output, so they don't have to use as much on the light portion of it as well, you know, the backlit LED, or actually, I think it's IPS mm-hmm. on that particular one. So I would like, I like the idea of a super bright monitor, and I like the idea of all these other features that they've added, but man, I, I would almost give up a few of those things for battery life. <laughs> I agree with that too, because uh, you know me and my V mounts over here that and gold mounts that <laughs> TJ hates. But uh, imagine uh, strapping those to a seven-inch monitor oh, no, and hanging yeah. off your camera—that's ridiculous. No, no. But what to do it logically to make sense of it is that you'd have one battery that's running the camera, the monitor, and whatever else you got going on. So, uh, and still, you'd be surprised because uh, one gold mount. Uh, which I hear the new Anton Bauer gold mounts don't even last that long compared to the old. Uh, I think they're only 90 color. watt, aren't they? As opposed to 120. They, they are. They are still, but there's people who argue on uh, BNH reviews that say that it doesn't last as long as the old models did. Uh, but even that guy gave me about 16 hours uh, running an audio preamp in my GH3. So, you, you know, you consider you've got plenty of room on there if you wanted to hook up an external monitor or something like that and have it all run off of one battery. True. So you wouldn't mount the battery to it. Uh, but, yeah, if you're going to use something that sucks down batteries like that and you want to shoot for more than an hour without swapping stuff out all the time, then it might be one of those that you start considering a system like that, uh, which has been getting a lot cheaper because, after all, the, um, the V-mount I have on this light uh, this guy was about 200 bucks for a 90 watt and it even has the, uh, the LCD screen that shows you uh, time remaining in hours and minutes. Does it so have its own it, built in charger circuit as well? So you just plug in like a barrel pin connector to charge it up. 
I haven't tested it, but apparently it does. I don't know how much faith I put in that, but nice. uh, I've been finding chargers too for these things that are pretty cheap. I found a dual charger for about 90 bucks used on eBay. So it's it's not terribly expensive to get into that stuff. All right, two more things to cover before we get out of here and let Devin get back to his work. Let's talk about some anamorphic glass. I am not an anamorphic shooter. Never had any interest in anamorphic shooting at all. Uh, nothing ever attempted to, to even slightly entice me to this. But Devin, you posted this in the show notes. Tell me about it. I did. Uh, because I'm, I, I really have a soft spot for anamorphic. And anamorphic adapters are kind of this ugly child between like proper anamorphic lenses and like you know before we talk about filters. anamorphic let's talk about the lens itself this is from slr magic it's yeah. a, a 2x anamorphic lens and it is mm-hmm. 1500 dollars. correct yes which is a little expensive i know it's a little expensive for an adapter uh but i am liking a lot of the images i'm getting out of it there's some video samples out there lots of people have been using them lots of sample units have been sent out and while it does seem kind of pricey, I think that that could put it in the range of being a rental for a special kind of project. Uh, but the lens flares on it have actually started looking to me like proper lens flares and the way the detail works and everything else. It, I've seen a lot of anamorphic adapters from SLR Magic, and most of them have been meh. Most of them have been like, okay, the light kind of streaks. It doesn't look anamorphic, but it streaks horizontally. That's cool. And I haven't been thrilled with any of them. This is kind of the first one where I went through a lot of the video samples. And while it wasn't perfect in every single shot, it would be something you'd have to kind of set up for and shoot around a lens like this. I, I am really impressed with the detail and the quality, the the amount of contrast and sharpness and everything else coming out of this lens that I go, damn, that does look pretty good. So it's it, it, that's why I'm interested in it. It, it. it is pricey. It is pricey, especially for just an adapter, but you compare that to what it would cost to use real anamorphic lenses, even a rental for anamorphic lenses, and those prices are pretty uh, crazy. So it's one of those that I'm keeping an eye on, and I keep reviewing video samples and like you know debating whether I'm going to rent it one day or something like that to try it out because I do. I've got a soft spot for anamorphic. All right, last thing on the list here, and this is actually something Mitch and I sort of talked about. Uh, more information is out on this, actually, so we can discuss that as well. But uh, the Revel Arc, this is that weird uh, tubular-shaped camera that came with a, a Sony backing. So I believe the sensor is Sony made, and the company developed the casing, the housing, and so on. It has a rotational device in the center that allows the camera to spin around as the body stays or excuse me, the the image stays stationary as the body rotates, and so it's slightly stabilized. What do you think about this camera, Devin? Is it weird? Is it worth uh, getting on the Indiegogo? Do you want one? You know, it, it would be interesting because the main thing they're like trying to sell with it being able to spin inside of its own body, which I worry about wear over time with something like that. And speed. How do you, uh, you know, uh, several people told me, well, it, it'll spin in, inside the body. Well, how do you keep up with, you know, they show it on a hubcap. How, yeah. do, how does it, the motor physically drive the inside element to move that fast unless it's a weighted, uh, you know, floating bearing type of system? No, it's definitely, from looking at their cutout, it definitely looks like it's a brushless gimbal kind of a motor uh, that's in the back. It's one of those that I just, I think to myself, like, uh, you know, how how does it all, like, how does it get power? Because I don't think it's spinning the battery as well because it wouldn't be able to power the the motor as well. So I imagine there's a lot of contacts that need to scratch against other contacts, you know, like a brush-like system. 
And I don't know those for surviving super long unless you go industrial size and industrial strength with your kind of uh, brushes that you put on those points. But it, it's it's interesting. They keep touting this whole like being able to rotate thing, which I don't think is like that crazy great of a feature. What I would like to see it though is it says internal stabilization, and I wonder if uh, it's all just using the same stuff we've seen from Sony in terms of just stretching the image a bit here and there to do internal stabilization. So you think warp stabilization with like I think coordinated it's doing, system? I think it's doing warp stabilization because when I first see this, I go, wow, that's a really small package. That would work great on a drone because a drone is one of those situations where you're normally setting up a gimbal to try to counteract a lot of the wind and crap that's blowing your drone around. But in this case, if all it does is spin... Uh, then it's cool that it has a Bluetooth heart rate monitor connection and all that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, I go, I don't know, as a shooter, I don't see much use for it because, I don't know, a camera that spins isn't that useful for me because there aren't many times where, I don't know, I'm flipping and doing tricks on a skateboard. I, it's it's so one of those kind of It looks of like there's more, uh, more images from the last time I looked at this, and it does appear as though there's this little connector that is the motor adapter for the back of this. Is that how it looks to you? Yeah, that's how it looks to me like that is the part that moves. So I think the front and rear assemblies spin independent of each other. And so that's it's using a gimbal. And I don't know what kind of RPMs it gets that you could stick it onto a hubcap. But still, I see a few really cool situations where you could use it because it spins. And then I see that being just a few really cool situations and everything else. Yeah, like the uh, obligatory hubcap mounting would be the perfect example of what to do with this. Uh, looking yeah. at the breakdown, it does look as though you can isolate the motor from the body. So uh, that portion of the adapter does appear to be replaceable, which is it would negate your concerns for possible uh, uh, wearing out. You know, at least it's a replaceable part, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what I'd like to see is kind of like what that Olympus 5 had with that internal sensor stabilization. I'd like to see something like that inside of an action camera, and then you put all that in a waterproof case. Because as I know right now, there doesn't seem to be a gimbal system that's really waterproof. And um, so that kind of limits when you use a gimbal and when you don't. I'd like to see an action camera like a GoPro or something with a built-in gimbal system that... uh, is completely waterproof so i never have to worry about it i charge it up whatever i need to do put it on whatever and i have a stabilized shot that's protected from the elements and gets me the 4k footage i'm looking for so there was another device and i can't remember what the name of it is off the top of my head but it uh it went with like a gopro or another device and it basically injected position coordinate information via an audio track into the gopro and when you went to post you could use the audio on that one channel to calculate the position for warp stabilization in the camera. And you just simply grab that metadata information out of the audio track, dropped it into the program, and it would give you a windowed version that was completely stabilized because it knew exactly the positioning of the camera the entire time. And well, th- that was pretty slick as far as warp stabilization goes because it doesn't take the analyzation time that you get if you're trying well, to and, do it in, and it in does post. a better job because with rolling shutter and things like that it can become a lot more difficult to uh interpret that data when you have jello and wiggle and everything else and it depends on how many objects and how much contrast those objects have and camera tracking is a pretty complicated endeavor where when you have the telemetry data you don't need to like try to figure anything out it's not just reducing time it's just having a more accurate way to understand 
how to stabilize it. So this is recording telemetry data. It would be interesting if you could use that to stabilize the image afterwards. But so far, the whole like stabilized thing just seems to be, I'm guessing because it's Sony, seems to, I'm assuming, be an internal electronic thing it just does on the fly uh, as opposed to like telemetry data and fixing it in post with like a better processor that can do a better job of stretching it. So, Do you think they could fit a 5-axis image stabilization system on those tiny, tiny sensors like you have in a GoPro or one of these devices? Because, I mean, this has got to be like one-third of an inch or smaller, I would say maybe yeah, even it, smaller than that. Yeah, because... Um, I suppose they fit uh, it onto the Samsung Galaxy S7, which would probably have a similar size sensor. About the same size, yeah. No, I, I don't... I think it's definitely possible. I think it's just that... Um, it, it, I think it would make the cameras too pricey. There I you think go, folks. Devin just features. predicted the next move for all GoPros. Image stabilization on sensor built in. Go! <laughs> all right. On that note, we have used up all of Devin's time. He's got to get out of here. So, Devin, where can people find you? Uh, you can just find me on Twitter, at DevoCut. Thanks for squeezing us in. Sorry we've been missing out on our conversations. I miss having you on the show. Uh, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere podcasts are distributed. I am DJ, and I run DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at DSLRFilmNoob. And of course, guys, like, rate, subscribe, and make sure to leave your questions in the YouTube comment section because that helps us out as we direct the show moving forward with your questions, comments, complaints, concerns, and all the other things that we need to address. On that note, we will see you next time on another overly enthusiastic episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast.